please join me for the scripture passage today, which is from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Bless the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, Glad to see so many of you here this morning. We are starting a new series this morning that will take us through Easter, which is at the end of April. And we're going to look at Jesus' journey to the cross, which has historically been called his passion. Uh, and so this is continuing our series on Matthew, this sub-series called The Passion of Jesus. Now, that's always struck me that the journey to the cross is called his passion. Your passion is what you have the most enthusiasm for or a strong desire for. And so for Jesus, that strong enthusiasm, that desire was for the cross. If you've seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, I think there are two, just a couple really, really great. I think he, he gets some things, uh, you know, a little sketchy. But there's a couple things he get he nails spot on. And I think one of the things that, that he nails spot on in that movie is Jesus' love and enthusiasm and desire for the cross. And there's a couple of scenes. One, where they've beaten him and they bring him out. And if you know kind of the events, you know that he comes out and he has to carry his cross all the way up the hill of Golgotha to where he's going to be crucified, down the Via Della Rosa and through the city. And when they bring him out after he's, he's just bloody and beaten and almost doesn't even look human anymore. And as they bring him out, he falls down before in the movie, before the cross, and he literally wraps his arms around uh, the base of the cross and almost in an embrace and begins to hug it. I mean, it's just powerful. And then there's another scene where he is, is led up, you know, onto the mountaintop, and as he gets to the mountaintop, he's completely exhausted, and he stumbles there on the mountaintop, and the cross kind of uh, topples over, and he's falling there on the ground. And if, you, if you've seen the movie, again, you might remember the scene. It's very moving that he's laying there, and as he lays there, he can barely move, but he begins to crawl, uh, furiously crawl, and just lays himself upon the cross. It's almost as if he just can't wait to get there. I mean, his whole life has been geared towards that moment, and, and he, he just, I mean, just the embrace and, and the, the movement towards it is just powerful. And the reason that the journey to the cross is called his passion is because the Latin root in the word passion means to suffer. And that's really helpful, I think, because 
If you want to know what the passion of your life is, all you have to do is ask this. What am I willing to suffer for? I mean, what do you want so badly that you're willing to go without other things for it? You go without sleep for that thing. You'll empty your bank account for that thing. You'll sacrifice time with family and friends for that thing. That, whatever that is, that's the passion of your life. Either a relationship or a goal or some possession that you're most willing to suffer for. But for Jesus, Jesus' passion was the cross. And that means his passion was you and me. And it's really fitting then that we should fast forward like this from the celebration of his death at Christmas to the, excuse me, his birth at Christmas to the celebration of his death at Easter. Um, It's very fitting that we would do that. Because his cross and his resurrection is the reason he came into the world. He was literally born to die. And you see it even hinted at in the gifts that the Magi present him. We looked at the Magi's visit last week. And if you remember, we, we historically say there were three of them. There may have been more. The reason we say three is because there were three gifts that were presented to him uh, when they came. They brought him gold, which signified his royalty. They brought him frankincense, which was a, a spice or you know used in temple worship for incense. And so it signified his divinity and their worship of him. But then we're told they presented him with myrrh. It's a strange gift to give a newborn king because myrrh was a very valuable, very potent spice that was used when somebody died. They would include the myrrh in the wrapping of the body for burial to counteract the smell. And so there it is, even there, hinted at right there, that he was a king who has come into the world to die. And so it's fitting that we would fast forward to Easter. Uh, the Wall Street Journal ran a story the week after Christmas that just asked this question. And I thought it was kind of... Uh, fun. They said uh, the, the the title of the article was "Do Christians Overemphasize Christmas?" Uh, and the article pointed out how Christmas has taken preeminence over Easter, both culturally and specifically for Christians. Uh, but but it also points out that it was not always this way. That for most of the two thousand year history of the church, it was the opposite. That Easter and not Christmas was the apex, considered the apex of the Christian story and Christian celebration. Uh, But I think things have changed. And in many ways, you know, we we need to be aware of this because, you see, our culture, to me, seems to be able to tolerate or even romanticize the baby in the manger. Even Ricky Bobby, right, can pray, dear Lord, baby Jesus. And when it's, if you've seen the movie, go, go YouTube it later. It's hilarious, the prayer. But if you've seen it, you know, his wife interrupts him when he's praying. And he reminds him, she reminds him, you know, Jesus did grow up. And he says very simply, I like the Christmas Jesus best. You know, I think that's true. I think people tend to like the Christmas Jesus best. So much so that you can still walk into a store at Christmas time, can't you, and hear the traditional Christmas hymns sung over the speaker system. But the Jesus of the cross, the Jesus that died for our sins and was raised to life again, not him. We want nothing to do with that Jesus. Baby Jesus in a manger, he's cuddly and sweet. The cross is offensive, and so we need a correction, I think. And this article quoted Rodney Clapp with Brazos Press as saying, the climax of the four Gospels is not Christmas, but the events we celebrate at Easter. So that's where we're headed. Now this morning, we're going to look at a passage that begins uh, Jesus' journey to the cross. In every one of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a turning point in those Gospels where Jesus has kind of been ministering and doing some things, and then there's this tipping point, you might say, or turning point where he intentionally begins to make his way to Jerusalem, where he will be arrested, tortured, and killed. And in each case, in all three Gospels, in each case, this story of Jesus being transfigured on the mountain marks the end of his public ministry 
in the beginning of his journey to the cross. And so we start here. Now, there are really three things in this passage that I want us to look at together. Three things that are going to get to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian and you're here, I think this will be helpful to you. If you are a Christian and you've been in the church for a long time, as we take 16 weeks to go through uh, this narrative of Jesus journeying to the cross, here are the anchor points that I hope we will come back to over and over again. These three things that are so crucial to what we mean when we say we're followers of Jesus. And they're just this. Three things that we've got to, that, that we've got to experience or have happen to us and in us and through us as we follow him. And they're just this, the three points of your outline. We need to see him in order to worship. We need to listen to him in order to repent. And ultimately, we need to follow him in order to die. Boy, doesn't that sound fun. Listen to him in order to worship. Excuse me, see him in order to worship. Listen to him in order to repent and follow him in order to die. So let's just walk through those three things. First, talking about seeing him. We need to see him in worship. Now, let's describe this event. Look there in Matthew 17. We're told here that he transfigures, or he is transfigured. And the Greek word there is metamorphosed. It's, it's you know, the, the, um, the caterpillar that goes into the cocoon and then comes out a beautiful butterfly. He is changed. His face begins to shine like the sun, we're told, and his clothes become radiant like they've been bleached in the washing machine. And what we're told is that his glory is being, is being unveiled. It's been veiled to this point. I mean, his glory, who he really is, the essence of, of who he is, in some sense, has been veiled up to this point. There's been miracles, of course, but the true nature of who he is and all of his glory has been hidden in some sense until this moment. In other words, you know, if you were in Palestine in these days and Jesus came walking into your village and walked down your street, you wouldn't just by looking at him say, wow, there goes the God of the universe. It's been hidden. But on this mountain, all of the dust that is collected on his clothes as he's walked the roads and all the frailty of human flesh and bone and all the physical weariness of the ongoing spiritual battle he's engaged in, all that fades away and for a brief moment, for one moment in time, his disciples see him as he really is, radiant and glorious, powerful, brilliant and awesome. It's like looking at the sun at noon. He's blindingly glorious. Now, what's happening? What's going on here? I want to say it to you this way, because I think this is where we can really be helped by this. They are awakening to the truth about him. That's what's happening here on this mountain. They've been walking the roads with him for almost three years now. They've seen him do miraculous things, right? They were there when he fed the 5,000 people, and when he, when he you know, walked on water, and when he did all the wonderful miracles and healings where he took blind eyes and opened them. But even in those moments as they've walked with him, all that time there's been something hidden from them until this moment, and now finally they see him. They, they really see him. They awaken to the truth about him, and that's what I mean when I say you've got to see him. You've got to behold him. We need to behold him. We've got to awaken to the truth about him. In other words, what we know to be true, Jesus has got to pass beyond the theoretical understanding in our heads and become practical and existential knowledge in our hearts. That it's not enough to have right beliefs. They've got to be real to you. What you say you believe about Jesus has to come into your heart. You've got to know it in here. You've got to know it at the core of your person. And that's what it means to see him. That you awaken to the reality of the truth about him like these disciples did. The gospel has to go just beyond facts and doctrines and become real to you. Uh, this happened to me about seven years ago. In 2003, I was, just a, a word of personal testimony, I was ministering in a church here in town as a youth pastor and I quit my job 
uh, because we were starting a new ministry and felt called by God to go and kind of do some itinerant teaching and travel around and preach. Uh, we ended up at a church in Lakeland, uh, and um, I really, I, it really was a cover all of that was for I was sick of the church, I wanted out, and I wasn't sure I wanted to do it anymore. It took about eight years for me <laughs> to get to that place. And we ended up at a church in Lakeland, uh, which became the mother church for this church. And our first Sunday there, I think you can ask Ashley to verify this, but our first Sunday there, uh, the, at about the time when Maddie got up here just a few minutes ago and said, and said the assurance of pardon, they had, a, they had an assurance of pardon. And the man there stood up who became a really good friend of mine, John Sweet, and raised his hands and said, now if your faith is in Jesus Christ, here is the pardon that is yours. And at that moment, my eyes began to water. That's called crying, in other words. They began to leak. And I looked down at her, and she began to cry. And we didn't stop crying until the pastor got up at the end of the service and did a benediction, which nobody had ever done for me before, ever, and raised his hands and said, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then no matter who you are, you can go from this place. And, and at that point, I pretty much just lost it. And what was happening is, is at, it was the right moment at the right time for me, and the gospel began to become real to me. I started listening to Tim Keller sermons. And began to really kind of think through the gospel. And, and Paul Miller, my friend, became, came, came into my life. And one day I woke up and everything was different. I don't know that if that was my conversion experience or not. But it's when the gospel became real to me. And I've been in church all of my life. I've been pastoring. Hello. I've been working on staff at churches for years. For almost ten years. I'd completed a seminary degree. I had all the right doctrines and beliefs. But I was a radically insecure person. Criticism absolutely destroyed me. I had no real joy. I was hypercritical of other people, self-righteous. I loved to argue and bury people and prove that I was right and they were wrong. And now you see all that stuff I just described, the self-righteousness and the critical spirit and all that so common that people experience from Christians in churches all the time. All that, I want to say to you, is a sign that the gospel is not yet real. You might have good doctrine. You might be able to explain things like justification or propitiation or adoption or double imputation or some fancy theological terminologies that you might come to the truth of, but it's not real. You've not been awakened to the truth about Jesus. You've not seen him. Now, let me give you a couple of illustrations. If you're anxious, I mean, again, I realize there, let me be careful. There are people who legitimately struggle. I'm not talking about a struggle from anxiety disorder that, that you need to see a professional and, and have medication for that sort of thing, and that's all that is wonderful. But if you're anxious, in the moments where you're the most anxious, trace it back, and a lot of times you'll see that the anxiety comes from the fact that you've not seen him like this. You might acknowledge, you might acknowledge the truth of God's sovereignty. You might say, I know he loves me, but you don't. You don't really believe it. It's not reality to you yet, or you wouldn't be anxious. And what needs to happen is you need to wake up to the truth of who he is, the truth of his sovereignty and his love. If you're another category of people, if you're prone to beating yourself up, if your favorite pastime is self-loathing, you need to see him. See, the gospel is not reality to you or you wouldn't do that because the gospel is that you're a sinner and you're loved, but you don't believe that. You may say, oh yeah, sure, sure, that's right. Yeah, I know that, but you don't know it existentially yet. It hasn't come into your heart and become a reality for you yet. You wouldn't do that to yourself. Okay, another one. If you're living an unadventurous life, this is my favorite, right? And I completely stole this. But if you're, if you're living an unadventurous life, and here's what I mean by that. If you're, if you're just playing it safe, if you're not generous with your time or your money or your emotions, if you're afraid to get involved in people's lives, 
because you might get hurt or, or to give your money away because it might mean you'll have less than your timidity. The timidity in that comes from the same thing. You may say you believe in Jesus, but it's not real. You need to see him. What the scripture says is that this is the work of God's spirit and our call to worship from 2 Corinthians 4, which we read just a few minutes ago, right? Paul says that when you become a Christian, what happens is that in the same way God said, let light come into darkness and the light shone in the darkness, he can speak into your unbelief and your sin and your spiritual blindness and he can cause you to see. In Paul's words, he can cause the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to shine in your hearts. So the Spirit's work is to help you see Jesus. And when you begin to see him like that, like the disciples did here, then you will begin to worship. And that word worship comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, worthship. It means to ascribe worth or significance to something. And that's exactly what's happening here, isn't it? I mean, look at this passage, this this, this story on the the mountaintop. The other Gospels tell us that what the the disciples are seeing, what's being revealed to them is Jesus' glory. And that, 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 that's what they see. And that word glory means weight or significance. That word glory in the Bible means reality. I mean, they're, they're coming in, they're awakening to reality. They're becoming wide awake to the truth, the reality of Jesus. And see, when you're full of anxiety, what's happening is, is you're giving more weight to your circumstance than you are to God's sovereignty and wisdom and love and ability to save you. Which is weightier, which is more reality. You know, your circumstances are more real to you than he is. You see that? When you're, when you're beating yourself up, you give more weight, more significance to your moral failures than to his blood shed to forgive you of your sins and save you from unrighteousness. Your sin is more real, more defining than his power to forgive. And that's unbelief. You see what happens on this mountain, what can happen in your life is summed up so nicely in verse 8. When they awaken from this, this moment... And we're told there in verse 8 that they saw no one but Jesus only. Isn't that great? That the whole, the horizon of their life was captivated by him. Everything else was peripheral. And that's what happens when you see him in worship. Worship means that you're alive to reality and not alive to unreality. That who Jesus is begins to define your reality. Not your circumstances, not your sins, not your fears. There's only Jesus. He's all you can see. And if you haven't woken up to the reality of Jesus, if it's not real to you yet in your heart, to the point that it's changing, then then you're not a Christian yet. You may go to church, you may have good doctrine, but it's not real. It's not not real in here, in the inner part of your life. You need to see him in order to worship. So, the first thing the passage demands is just this, that we need to see him in worship. And that's what we're hoping for every time we get together on Sunday mornings. That's what we're here for, but it's not enough. Not enough. Everywhere in the Bible, worship and obedience are linked together. It's not enough just to have a worship experience. It's not enough just to be in this room and and have the worship thing going on. Everywhere in the Bible, worship and obedience are linked closely together. Think of Isaiah uh, chapters 1 through 5 that we read in community Bible this past, community Bible reading this past week. I love, Isaiah is just great. He, he, He basically gets so fed up with the Israelites, he said, would you please, would you please call off the worship services? Stop doing worship. The way he says it is, stop trampling my courts and go do justice. See, it's not enough to see him in worship. We need also to listen to him in order to repent. Now, here's Jesus. Look at this, shining like the sun in glory. It's obviously an overwhelming experience for the disciples. And Peter has an idea. Don't you love Peter? Peter's going to come up a bunch in Matthew, by the way. 
Uh, he's really at the center of all this stuff. Peter has a great idea. He wants to build three shelters on the mountain for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Peter says, in other words, Peter's saying, man, this is great. I mean, this, is, this is amazing. Let's stay right here. And really, Peter gets exposed for making two mistakes that are both addressed in the next few verses, and that's just what we're going we're gonna to talk about for the remainder of our time here. His idea is a bad idea. <laughs> and we know this because, look there, Matthew says that as he was still speaking, a cloud begins to overshadow them, and then a voice speaks out of the cloud. So God is interrupting Peter, which is probably a new, new thing for Peter because Peter's typically the one interrupting other people. But here God is interrupting Peter, and it's a mild rebuke. Now, the cloud, the cloud, if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that in the Old Testament, if you were a Jewish person reading this story, as soon as he said the cloud descends, you would know what that is, that the cloud is symbolic everywhere in the Bible of the presence and the glory of God. So when the people come out of Egypt, remember we're told that they're led by a pillar of fire at night, and what during the day? Cloud. And then again... There's a story in 1 Kings 8 where Solomon builds the temple, which is going to be the house for God, the place where God's presence and glory reside. And we're told that a cloud comes and begins to fill the place. And then in Ezekiel chapter 10, when God brings judgment upon his people and he's removing his presence from them, Ezekiel sees a cloud that comes up and goes away. It's symbolic of the presence of God leaving. And so here the cloud comes down. I mean, the glory of God comes into the place. It falls down upon this mountain, and then the voice of God comes from the cloud. And what is an already an overwhelming experience becomes too much for the disciples. I mean, this, this is the best worship service, the best conference, the best summer camp experience in the history of the world right here. Right? And when the voice speaks from the cloud, it becomes clear that the goal of the whole thing is not the experience. It's that they listen to him. See that? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Verse 5. Now that means a couple things. First, first it means just this. It means that we have to acknowledge his unique authority and preeminence. Now here's Peter's first mistake. Look at Peter's first mistake. He wants to make three shelters. Now, all of the commentators and scholars say that this means in essence that Peter is making Jesus equal with Moses and Elijah. This is understandable, really, because for Peter's imagination, both Moses and Elijah were very revered. Moses being the one who brought the law to Israel, Elijah being kind of the consummate prophet, the most powerful and well-known of the prophets. But Peter's mistake is to not see Jesus' unique authority and preeminence. And that's the reason from the voice from the crowd. It's a corrective. And look what it says. This is my son. In other words, Jesus is not just another Moses. He's not just another prophet. He's the son of God. He's the one who created Moses and Elijah. I mean, he has unique authority. I mean, when Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from the mountain in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, they were written in Jesus' handwriting. When Elijah spoke and said, Thus saith the Lord as a prophet, he was quoting Jesus. And that's why you should listen to him, the voice says. Now, immediately a problem. Immediately we have a big problem, and that is that all the research and common sense shows that we are not good listeners. I read an article this week that made a couple of really great points about the fact that we don't listen well. And, I mean, this is secular, not, not Christian in any sense, but this psychologist is just meditating on this, and he says, okay, let's be honest, here's the reality. We don't listen well because we'd rather be talking. Right? 
And because, for a couple of reasons, he says, first, because when you talk, you're in control of the situation. You're, you're, you know, talking sometimes can be a way of pushing your will into the situation and getting your goals accomplished. And then secondly, when you talk, you're the center of attention. Even you're, even you are focused on yourself when you're talking. Right? You're thinking about yourself, but when you listen, you have to make somebody else the center. So listening is de-selfing. So when God tells us to listen, he's challenging our willfulness and our selfishness, our wanting to be in control of our lives, our wanting to be in control of everything, even him. And this is what the Bible calls sin. It's this besetting selfishness and self-orientation, a desire to be the center of attention, to have everything be about me, to have everybody and even God listen to me and serve me and do what I say. And that means that one of the marks of grace in your heart and life is that you would begin to listen more and to be a good listener. Even research, I found this very fascinating, shows that we speak at 200 to 250 words per minute, but we can listen at 300 to 500 words per minute. And so God has created us with a greater capacity in our design to listen than to speak. Now, Peter's always talking. Peter, I mean, Peter, Peter's constantly, I mean, he's just like, he's that person. Always talking. And here he is again, talking. When he should be listening. Because Peter's willful. He loves to be the center of attention. Peter, Peter, every, it's very clear, Peter has a wonderful plan for Jesus' life. Right? He does. He has a wonderful plan for Jesus' life. And so the voice from the cloud comes and it says, shut your mouth. And pay attention. But really what's going on here is Peter, Peter's guilty of casual Christianity, of thinking, you know, this is so nice. Isn't this nice? And not ever really personally wrestling with the implications of who Jesus is. Not ever really listening. Not ever submitting your will to his will. Not ever taking your cues from him and allowing his voice to speak into your circumstances and your choices and your decision-making process. You see, this really, what Peter's representing is the person who follows Jesus because it's the socially respectable thing to do or sort of insurance policy against things you're really afraid of. But the voice from the cloud, if the voice from the cloud is right, if this is indeed God's son, then the implications are enormous. You can, you can, you know, you can just try to put him in your back pocket and pull him out whenever you might need him. But really, if if the voice is true, and if this is God's son, then really the only, only option we have is that we better start listening to him. He's not some great teacher you can admire. He's your creator and your Lord. And he owns you. You see, when you see him, the way the disciples did here on this mountain, the only real option you have is to acknowledge his unique glory and authority. To confess that you don't give the orders, you take them. And what that means is, is this is going to lead you into a lifestyle of repentance. Your whole life will be repentance. Because the one thing I can promise you, here's what I can promise you. I'm not very old. I don't have a lot of wisdom. But here's the one thing I've learned that I can absolutely promise you. If you really start to listen to him, he's going to tell you no. No. He's going to disagree with you. He's going to cross you. You're going to think, you're going to be, you know, a place in your life, you're going to think, man, this is great. And he's going to say, no, no, that's not great. That's bad. That's bad, right? And when he crosses your will, when he crosses your will, you have two options. You can insist that you're right and he's wrong. (laughs) Of course, you are arguing with the God of the universe. But, or number two, you can change. And that change is repentance. 
And so all of life is re- all of life is responding to listening to him. So I need to ask you this morning, what are your habits of listening? What habits do you have in your life of listening? This is I want to encourage you at the beginning of the year. This is why we read the Bible together. We listen for his voice as we read the scriptures together. CBR is a great practice for you as you seek to develop habits of listening. But let me ask you about prayer, and this just thought just came to me. In your praying, in your praying, do you do all of the talking? Because remember, what God I need, God I want, God do this, God this is what, are you the one doing all the talking? Do you ever have times in your prayer where you just sit and listen? Boy, that's scary. What about silence as a spiritual discipline? Now, my wife at this point would say, amen, come Lord Jesus, please let me figure out how to find, you know, a moment of silence in a house with four kids and a husband that's a pastor who can't shut his mouth ever. Right? But have you ever thought about silence as a discipline? And so listening to him means recognizing and embracing his unique authority over your life, but it also means ultimately that you follow him. And walk as he walked and do what he did. And that means that you will have to die. That ultimately you'll have to die. And that's the third point of the sermon. So Peter's second mistake is just this. So what does it mean to follow him then? And Peter's first mistake is to make three. Want to make three shelters and not just one. To not acknowledge his preeminence. But his second mistake is he wants to stay on the mountain. You see that? That's the reason for the shelters. He says, Peter says, this is too good. Let's just stay here. Right? I mean, Peter wants the spiritual high of the moment to be the end of his discipleship and not the means to the end of his discipleship. And this is really important for us. And if you're under the age of of 25 in the room, I need you to listen to this next just few sentences, okay? It's really important because one of the ways that postmodernism continues to affect the church is that it is producing a bunch of experienced junkies baptized in Christian faith who the goal of the spiritual life for them is the ecstasy or the high of the worship experience or the warm fuzzy that happens when you get 15,000 college students in one place. That's not the goal. If you follow Jesus, there will be spiritual highs, but those spiritual highs, those times of close intimacy with him, they are a means to the end, and the end would be that you follow. It's not how high you soar, it's how straight you walk when your feet hit the ground, I've heard somebody say before, right? No, the voice from the cloud says, listen to him. And this is pretty important contextually because Jesus and Peter are coming off a pretty significant disagreement. If you look there in verse 1, Matthew connects this with the passage before it when he says, and after six days, so there's this time reference there. There's time connector. And so we need to, what scene is before this scene? And the scene just before this is kind of the climax of Matthew's gospel where Jesus asks Peter, Peter, who do you, you know, who do the crowds say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're one of the prophets, and some say this, and Peter, and, and Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter has a shiny moment. He kind of, all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, you know, a blind squirrel finds a net every once in a while, and here's Peter, right? You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you're right. And then what happens is, is, so Peter's got it right. Jesus is Messiah. He's the king they've been waiting for. He's the one that's finally going to come and restore all things. And Jesus immediately begins to tell him how, what that means is, is they're going to go to Jerusalem and, and he's going to suffer and he's going to be killed and, he, and, and he's going to go into the grave and then on the third day he's going to rise again. And Peter kind of takes him off to the side. Jesus kind of rebukes Jesus. Jesus, no. You don't understand. That's not what, that, that's not what happened. Messiahs don't do that. Messiahs are kings. Messiahs are powerful. And so there's this huge disconnect. And Jesus basically Jesus basically has a moment where he has to look at Peter and say, Get behind me, Satan. Now that's bad. 
when the Son of God calls you Satan. I mean, you have transgressed into places yet unknown. And so there's this major, major disagreement between these two. Peter thinks, Peter, you know, thinks it's, it's going to all be rosy and great, and we're going to go into Jerusalem, and they're going to put him on the throne, and I'm going to be the first in command, and it's going to be amazing. He wants this perpetual mountaintop experience, and Jesus keeps insisting that what awaits him in Jerusalem is not a throne but a cross. And Peter and the rest of the disciples can't seem to get their head around all of Jesus' talk of suffering. And that's why they're confused. If you look down here in verses 9 through 13, there's this, there's this talk about this Elijah figure. And they're really confused because the scribes say that Elijah has to come before the Messiah comes. And here Jesus is claiming to be Messiah, but they, don't, they, haven't, they haven't seen Elijah yet. And so there's all this confusion. And this teaching comes from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The very last words in the Old Testament, where an Elijah figure, we're told, will come and prepare the way for Messiah. And so the Jews begin to believe that this Elijah must come first, then Messiah. And, but for the, some, you know, for the same reasons that the scribes and the religious leaders don't recognize Jesus, they don't recognize John as this Elijah figure. Why? Because suffering wasn't one of their categories. And Jesus hints at this here. When he says, verse 11, Elijah doesn't, does come and he will restore all things. And that phrase means what it says, that he would take all things that are wrong and set them to right. But to do that, John the Baptist had to suffer and die. I mean, he got his head cut off. And that also means that it will be true of the one who follows him, that in order for Jesus to fulfill his mission, he must suffer and die. And it's ended at twice here in verse 9, and then again in verse 12. So there it is. They're going to Jerusalem. And it's not going to be what they're still hoping for. He's going to be arrested and condemned and killed. And when the voice from the cloud says, listen to him. It's a way of rebuking Peter and the others and us for all the ways we're still trying to escape the implications of the cross at the center of our discipleship. John got his head cut off. Jesus was killed. Most of the disciples were tortured and executed. How is it that we think we're going to escape that? Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to die too. He says it this way, that everyone who would name themselves his disciples have a cross to bear. That if you're a Christian, I don't think this means that you're going to, somebody's going to kill you. Although it might, because maybe we need to go to Muslim countries where they kill people to be Christians. But if you are a Christian, there has to be a cross in your relationships. You have to love people sacrificially to your own hurt. There has to be a cross in your finances. There's only one way to follow him faithfully, and that is to take up your cross and follow him to your own death. So when the cloud comes down, <laughs> and I know I'm thinking the same thing you are, when the cloud comes down and the voice speaks from the crowd and they begin to wrestle through all these things, we're, we're told in verse 6 that they are terrified. And when I think about these things, I'm terrified too. They're terrified. Now that word there is phobia. We know what a phobia is, isn't it? It's an irrational fear. It's a consuming fear that just paralyzes you. You can't be talked out of it. It's what happens to me at Grandfather Mountain on the Mile High Bridge when I look down over the edges and I literally can't make one foot... <laughs> I'm doing this thing across the bridge because I'm so scared to death. And that's what happened to Peter, James, and John. They're on their face in the dirt and they're paralyzed with fear because it's just too much. And maybe that's how you're feeling at the moment too when you consider the implications of following him in order to die. So where do you get the courage to do this? Love's costly, right? How do you overcome your fear and find the power and courage to love? And the answer is just this, that you have to stare at the cross of Jesus and see how much it cost him to love you. And that's what we're going to do at this meal together this morning. That's what we're going to do in this series as we continue to look at his journey to the cross. I want to close 
I want to close with, with a quote from a, a man, a scholar named N.T. Wright. And he, does it, he just does this wonderfully. He says, uh, the scene at the transfiguration offers a strange parallel in contrast to the cru- crucifixion. Now listen to his words. He says, if you're going to meditate on the one, you might like to hold the other in your mind as well as a sort of backdrop. Here, on this mountain, is Jesus revealed in glory. There, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, is Jesus revealed in shame. Here, his clothes are shining white. There, they've been stripped off and soldiers have gambled for them. Here, he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, the two great... Israelite heroes representing the law and the prophets. There he is flanked by two criminals representing the level to which Israel had sunk in rebellion against God. Here a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There darkness comes upon the land. Here Peter blurts out how wonderful everything is. There he is hiding in shame after denying he even knows who Jesus was. Here a voice from God himself declares that this is his wonderful son. There a pagan soldier declares in surprise that this really was God's son. The mountaintop explains the hilltop and vice versa. See, his glory is that he came to die. And then N.T. Wright goes on to say, perhaps, the only real, perhaps we only really understand either of them when we see it side by side with the other. But the point of it is this, that we should learn to recognize that same power, love, and beauty within Jesus and to listen for it in his voice, not least of which when he tells us to take up our cross and follow him. Let's pray together this morning as we come to his table. Lord Jesus, you are blindingly beautiful, and yet we confess that we come, and all too often our worship experience is the yawn of familiarity. Oh, forgive us. Forgive us that we would be so hard-hearted, that we we confess that oftentimes we do not possess eyes that see nor ears that hear, uh, that we yawn and we stretch and we tap the clocks on our hand and can't wait to get beyond this time to go and sit at lunch or to go and watch the football game or whatever it might be that that awaits us after we're done here. Uh, We need to see you, and so we pray that you would come and reveal yourself to us. Give us eyes to see that we might truly worship, even as we continue to progress through the service. We need to hear you, and yet we're scared to death to uh, give you room to speak into our lives. We'd rather stay busy because we know that if your voice comes, it comes making demands upon us, and that's not very comfortable, and so we've shut our ears But, Father, we pray that you would not uh, hold that against us, but that in kindness and love and salvation to us, you would come and you would give us ears to hear, that we might truly hear your voice and hear it speaking of its love and compassion toward us as your people. And we confess to you that um, we're arthritic in our legs and our feet, that we do not desire to follow after you. We'd rather not have anything to do with the Jesus of the cross. Uh, We prefer the baby Jesus in a manger. And yet you've called us that if we're going to be true in our discipleship to you, that we must take up our cross and follow. And so we ask that you come and give us hearts, give us courage, come and reveal to us the glory of your cross and of the cost that you paid freely, willingly, that you might have us. Help us to see that your passion was the cross and by virtue of it, us, so that our passion might become you and thus the crosses that we are called to bear for your sake. Do all these things that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the promise of the Scripture is very clear. 
that the glory that shines forth from Jesus on that mountaintop experience is just a, is is part of the glory that will be revealed in us too on the day when we reach bright heaven's sun. There's glory awaiting us as well that in that day we will be glorious like He was glorious. Revelation says that we will shine like the sun and our garments will will sparkle uh, like dazzling white. That there's glory. That is waiting for us there. But it is the light and momentary troubles that we experience in this world that is preparing for us that glory. That the doorway to that is the doorway of cross-bearing and suffering and love for the sake of other people. And so as we go and we do that in obedience to the command of Jesus, we do it knowing that on the other side of it there's, there's amazing glory that awaits us. And we can hold on to that glory and the promise of it in this benediction, which is the promise that as you go... You go, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, no matter how hard the circumstances are that you go to, you go empowered by the Father's promise to be present with you and to bless you and to um, make himself known to you and to give you courage and boldness in what you're doing. So receive the benediction that is the promise of the Father's approval and affection and also of the glory that is yours in the last day when we finally see him face to face. Receive this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.